a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 94 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to people at all levels of the sportscasting business. Make sure to follow the show on Twitter by following me at Radio underscore Logan. And if you're not subscribed to the show, please do so by simply clicking subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen on or going to SayTheDamnScore.com and clicking on the big red subscribe button at the top of the page. This episode is being released on July 3rd, which makes it about a week since I got home from the National Sports Media Association Hall of Fame weekend in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It was a great experience, and I really got to meet a ton of people from all levels of the industry. What I think really surprised me the most, though, was the number of people I met who, when I reached out my hand to shake their hand and introduce myself, they would say, you're the guy with the podcast. And I don't mean this as a humble brag. In fact, usually when I find, when I hear other people giving statements like the one I'm giving now, I get annoyed by them. I think they're very self-serving. But I really couldn't believe the number of people who said they enjoyed or were inspired by this podcast because in my mind, and to a degree in my podcast numbers, this is just a small niche project that that I do in my spare bedroom because I have a good time doing it. The reason that I do bring it up is because to those who were kind enough to say nice things to me at the conference, I'm really not good at taking compliments. I learned that the hard way over that time frame because A, I don't get that many of them because it's rare that I find myself in a room full of broadcasters, and B, it just makes me uncomfortable in a weird way because honestly I'm just not used to it which really is stupid but it, it's just who I am usually when you get a compliment you want to tell the person something nice in return hey I like your shirt oh really thank you I like your hat something to to acknowledge and show appreciation but when it's someone you don't know you really can't do that and what I found myself not intentionally, but doing consistently, was immediately going into self-deprecation mode. And I would say things like, oh, you like the show? I should get you together with the other nine fans sometime, and you can hang out. And when I say that, I mean to be funny. I don't mean anything negative by it. But in hindsight, I kind of felt like a little bit of a jerk, and that I was dismissing people who were trying to tell me that they appreciate something that I do spend a lot of time and effort producing and that they find it helpful for whatever reason. So I just wanted to take a quick moment before we get into the interview to tell anyone who was put off by weird answers by me at the conference who said they listened to the show that 
I really do appreciate you. I sincerely want to thank everyone who supports and listens to this podcast. It's a labor of love. I don't make any money on it. I'm really not trying to. And it's it, it's a pleasure to do. It's fun. And I'm glad that people around the country have found it helpful. Anyway, I'm releasing this episode a day early because, well, tomorrow is the 4th of July. And what I've found through about three and a half years of doing this show is that if you release a show on a holiday... Nobody listens to it because they're in their cars with their families traveling all over the country and listening to podcasts is kind of a solitary thing. So you would think that maybe people would drive by themselves or that it would boost up numbers. It has not. It has consistently hurt download numbers. So I just wanted to make it easier for everybody tuning in to listen to the show and enjoy it and get it in potentially before their holiday weekend. We'll go back to our normal Thursday release schedule for the next episode in two weeks and one day from today. And now it's time to quit waffling and get to the actual interview. And this week is a really good one. In this episode, I chat with Dave Benz. He is the TV voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves. And Dave, thanks for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. No problem, Logan. I appreciate you having me on. Diving into the research that I was able to do on you a little bit, one of the things that I found interesting was that at your graduation from, I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, but is it Oswego State? Oswego, Oswego State. Oswego State University. You seriously considered not going because you were going to get your, I believe, first collegiate play-by-play opportunity. I, it, that, that is actually true. Yeah, we um, the the walking the stage happened the same day as I had finally been able to procure some equipment to do, we didn't. The radio station at the uh, at the school never had a Comrex system to be able to do a game, and so I was finally able to get us some Comrex equipment to be able to go and do a game. And it was basically, do I go do this game? Or do I walk the stage? But we were able to finally work it out where, because thankfully, I, clearly the graduation ceremony was on campus and it was a home game and it was on campus. So I was able to work it out to, to walk the stage. But I mean, I didn't linger. I got my diploma, took a couple of pictures with mom and dad and, and went over, straight over to the gym. Usually at the collegiate level, you're able to get those reps throughout your your college career. Why, why did you have to wait until graduation day? It, it, it was just not something that they really did. I, I mean, it, I, Oswego was a great broadcast school, they, a fantastic school. I mean, it really prepared me well for a life in broadcasting, but um, you know, it, they had a student run TV station, a student run radio station, but just doing live play by play, was not part of the equation that you could do studio shows um, you could go out and, and record things and, and edit it, you know, for post and put it up. But um, it's just doing live remotes was not something that they had been doing. Uh, so we finally were able to to bring that into the equation at the end of my last semester as a student there. And that was kind of maybe I got, uh, you know, I don't even know what became of that. I I'm, I'm, would imagine that it's continued on. Uh, I'm sad to say that I have, haven't really looked into it or go check. And I guess I could put that, uh, uh, you know, as item number uh, 10,962 on my to-do list of things that I, that I want to do, but uh, never seem to get around to doing. Were you one of the people who knew from a real young age you wanted to be a sportscaster or someone who figured it out late? 
That's an interesting question because I don't really have a firm answer to that. And, and the reason I say that is because in some ways I look back at it and so many things that I did as a youngster point to the fact that it was so obvious that this is an industry that I should have been gearing myself to be a part of. But consciously, I was never aware of it. When I was, so for example, when I was a youngster, I could still remember myself and a childhood friend of mine. We would sit and we would record what I guess today would be a podcast. We, you know, the ramblings of, you know, 11 and 12 year old boys <laughs> talking about radio shows and music and whatever. And we would record it on cassette, but we never did anything with it and we never thought to do anything with it. And then when I was in high school, I wrote sports for the student newspaper for the student. I, I was more of a newsletter than a newspaper, but the student newspaper. And I would do the uh, announcements on the public address system. And I would work with the basketball coach to help record video for the games because we had a really top notch high school basketball program that I had no chance of, of actually playing on. It was yeah, uh, pretty much everybody that was on our team was getting a, a D1 scholarship or at least going to a D3 school. Um, and I was decent, but I wasn't that level of decent. So, I, But when we would do the video, we would sit and we'd do play-by-play and pretend we were. But again, it never dawned on me like, hey, this is something I could do for a career. And I was great in math and science in high school. And so my counselors, they all steered me into an electrical engineering track. And I initially went to college out of high school. I went to Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York, uh, to go for electrical engineering. And I was miserable, did not take to it at all, was not passionate about it. And after one year there, decided, okay, this isn't for me. And at that time, I went back home and hooked up with a friend of mine from high school, and he told me he had been taking a sportscasting class and uh, thought that maybe he might pursue a career in sportscasting. And that was really kind of like the aha moment. The lights went on for me, and I was like, wait, you could do that? And, and then, you know, then all the other stuff, like, wait, I've been kind of gearing myself towards this my whole life, but I had never really, it, it had ne- I'd never connected the dots. Have you ever used that electrical engineering background to like <laughs> to solve a huge problem right before a broadcast with equipment going wrong? I uh, no, no. I try to stay. I try to stay as far away from that as I can. I let the experts do the expert thing. You know, listen. I I still I, I like to tinker with stuff. You know, and and I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. And I've done. In, in the TV industry, and I've done radio, and in the you know along the way, I've done pretty much everything. I've set up the Comrex system. I've you know to, soldered together some wires, and you know I've, I've run cameras, and I've done audio, and I've done replay, and I've done everything you can do in a TV truck, and um, you know so so I have a pretty varied background, especially early in my career doing all that. But no, actually, like doing engineering, now nah, I'll leave that to the professionals. I find it interesting that you went to Oswego State, which is, I believe, if my Google Maps were correct, about 45 minutes away from Syracuse, yep. which is the where the broadcast factory. They run them out on an assembly line, and everybody's path is a little bit different. Was there ever any consideration to going there since it was so close to where you actually went? Well, I mean, I grew up in Syracuse, so I mean, that was home for me. Uh, so it, it, you know, most people just assume I went to Syracuse because that is where I'm from. Um, you know, it was just, 
I, 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 looking back on it, there's not a definitive reason why I didn't go to Syracuse. I do have, if you look at my college transcript, I probably have two or three credit hours from Syracuse on my, on my college transcript because I did some summer classes in high school. I know I took at least one AP course that was sponsored through them. And the big thing, my biggest association in any kind of, I guess, unofficial capacity with Syracuse University is that um, because I lived in Syracuse and their student-run radio stations were much, you know, much further advanced than what we had out of Oswego State. And they were actually brought like our student station was, you know, being just broadcast in the, the, the student hall um, it, it, where Syracuse's student stations. They had two of them. They have WJPZ and they also have WAER. And those were actually broadcast on a regular FM frequency and could be reached within, you know, I don't know what the radius is, but they had a pretty good signal and they would stay on the air 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. So they would need summertime relief. Uh, They would need, they would need local students to go uh, who were not necessarily Syracuse students to come in and work radio shifts at those stations over the summer. So because I was local, because I was in broadcasting and I knew a bunch of people that were associated with Syracuse, I did get that opportunity. I did get a chance to work at the Syracuse University student radio stations. So I guess in some ways I got a chance to, you know, uh, that it, it, that's one of the things that people pay thousands of dollars to go to Syracuse to do, to be able to be on the air on those stations. So I guess I kind of, you know, did the end around and went in through the back door and got to work at those stations and, and still was able to kind of put experience from those stations on my resume without actually having to pay the Syracuse tuition, which at the end of the day, if I'm going to be honest, probably that's probably the biggest reason why I didn't go to Syracuse is probably tuition. I mean, if I had known straight away out of high school that I wanted to go into sportscasting, then, then I may have, you know, had it in a different mindset, but because I didn't know that it's what I wanted to do. Um, and by the time I had accepted that, I had already, you know, I, I went to community college for a year after RIT to figure out, is this really what I want to do? And then at that point I was, had moved out of the house and my parents, they weren't really going to be contributing a lot of money for me to go to private school. So I went to Oswego State and I actually, I never lived on campus. I, I commuted back and forth. I, I lived in a, uh, in a house that I shared with a couple of other guys uh, that was midway between Oswego and Syracuse. So it was about probably a half an hour, 35, 35 minutes from each. And I, and I worked, I worked in Syracuse and I went to school out of Swigo while I was doing all that. And, um, you know, I, one of the things that I'm most proud of is I paid every dime of my college tuition. I, I, my, my parents, you know, they, they did all they could and they would, they would throw, float me some money for books or for whatever. But when it came to paying my tuition and paying my way through school, I, I paid every dime of my college tuition. What was your first break after college that allowed you to start paying that college tuition by broadcasting? Really the first, I mean, the first paycheck that I ever got was I was a, par- a part-time sports producer at WTVH TV in Syracuse. Um, and uh, I worked with some great people there. Mike Tarico was on his way out. We kind of passed, uh, passed ships as we were leaving, but I got to know Mike a little bit as he was leaving and I was going in. He was on his way to ESPN. And Dan Horde, who is now the Cincinnati Bengals radio play-by-play guy, does a lot of stuff with the Cincinnati Bearcats. And 
I'm I'm pulling for him to be a candidate for the Cincinnati Reds job, which is going to open up next year. Dan is a a, a fantastic baseball voice and loves baseball. He's been doing uh, minor league baseball on the side. I think he's done some Reds broadcasts. He was kind of my mentor. He was at WTVH. He got me that first paycheck. And when I was there, I was able to get reps. I would, you know, on a weekend after the 6 o'clock news would end, uh, I'd, you know, buy the crew. I, I'd order pizzas for the crew, and I'd be like, hey, can I get on the set and record some sportscasts, you know, <laughs> do some reps? And I did that a lot, and I did it enough that, you know, I would show them to the news director, and eventually he was like, all right, I'll give you a shot to do a fill-in work. So that was probably my first real on-air shot was I got a chance to fill in at the CBS affiliate in Syracuse, which, you know, at that time was probably market 72 or 73, which isn't a terrible size for a market. And I, uh, because I was able, and I did that enough times, I didn't muck it up. They, they gave me more opportunities. And then I eventually got a real tape and then I was able to send that tape out. And then I got my first full-time job and that was in Utica, New York, not far. So it was all kind of in Syracuse area where I grew up. And then, but my biggest break probably was after being in Utica for a year and a half. Um, and at the time I didn't really necessarily recognize it as being a great, a great, you know, opportunity, but I was able to uh, go to Green Bay. I went uh, in 96, I went to Green Bay uh, and I got there my very first day at the Fox affiliate in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I mean, a kid from Syracuse, I I didn't know much about Green Bay. I just knew it was even colder than Syracuse, which is hard to imagine. (laughs) And and I'm a young kid going to, uh, to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I knew the Packers might be pretty good. And, man, were they ever. I mean, I, I got there the first day of the first minicamp practice of that season. So I kind of started on the ground floor of that season, and they took it all the way to the Super Bowl, won the championship, went back to the Super Bowl the next year. So, I mean, I was covering, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, I was in a small market, but I was doing major market stuff, covering a, a team that went to the Super Bowl back-to-back years. And that was, you know, that looking back, I mean, that – you know, getting the opportunity in Syracuse, getting the opportunity in Utica, those were great opportunities. But catching lightning in a bottle in Green Bay and getting a chance to go to back-to-back Super Bowls and really be around some of the premier broadcasters. You know, that was where I met Joe Buck for the first time. I met Kevin Harlan for the first time, Sal Palantonio, uh, you know, able to just kind of rub shoulders with a lot of these people and kind of see how they did things. Um, that was probably the, 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 the fortunate opportunity, you know, that, that kind of got things going for me. And the key to it all was bribing people with pizza. Bribing people with pizza will take you a lot further than you know. <laughs> Since then, you've been all over the place. You've definitely moved around a lot. Uh, Miami, Houston, San Antonio, Bay Area, Colorado. You've done the... San, pre- no, never in San Antonio. You just worked for the Spurs, correct? Well, I did. So it was a weird. I didn't work for the Spurs um, when I worked in Dallas. So I went. So I'll tell you. I'll tell you that. I'll tell you that the the map first. It was so it was Green Bay, then Miami. That was another big break to go from Green Bay to Miami. I mean, that was like, I loved Green Bay. I don't mean to disparage Green Bay, but you know, after being growing up in Syracuse and then being in Green Bay winters for three years. 
And then getting to go to Miami, I mean, it, I felt like I got paroled. <laughs> and so, you know, to get to go be on South Beach and be down there for three years, and then at, and then I was in a major market. Now I'm in a now I'm in a town where there's, you know, uh, the the Miami Hurricanes football team was, you know, I mean, you're talking about Clinton Portis and Re- Reggie Wayne and Santana Moss and Dan Morgan and uh, Ed Reed and I mean, just you know, all these great players were there. And, and, you know, then you got the Dolphins and, and the Heat and the Marlins, and it's like uh, all in the Florida Panthers, and all of a sudden I'm covering everything. Uh, but then I went to Dallas. Dallas is kind of where you probably got the San Antonio thing because when I was in Dallas, I was working for Fox Sports Southwest, and they did – they had the contracts for all the NBA teams in the state of Texas at that time. So they had the Mavericks, the Spurs, and the Rockets. So I would do um, – I, I would I would – do pre and post game shows for any of those three teams. And there was actually one night where I did pre and post game shows for all three teams in the same night, because (laughs) I don't, and I don't remember which team was where, but it was like the Spurs were in New York playing the Knicks in the garden. The Mavs were at home playing somebody. And then the Rockets were on the West coast playing the Lakers or something. I mean, so, so each of the teams were in a different time zone and I did, I, it's unthinkable, but I did a post game show, pre game show, and a post game show for all three of those NBA teams in one night. Um, you were just praying for no <laughs> overtime, and it of was, them. it was, yeah, it was complicated. I don't even know what the scenario would have been if there had been multiple overtimes, but it was basically I was on the air nonstop that entire night and watching a lot of basketball, and it, it was fun. Uh, but that's probably why you thought San Antonio, because at some point I, I did do. Uh, you know, some Spurs pre and post game shows, not a lot, but I, I did a handful. Um, then after Dallas, I went to Indianapolis and then Indianapolis to Denver, Denver to San Francisco and then San Francisco to here. So you did pre and post at just about every one of those stops. And if anyone follows the industry, they know that that's a great eventual stepping stone to getting a play by play job for a professional or college team. What skills should people be working on to be able to become a great pre-post-game show host? Oh, man. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just you can the, – the thing that I always think about is you can learn a lot more. And, and as I'm saying this, I'm thinking I'm doing all the talking on this podcast. You can learn a lot more from listening than you can from talking. And when you get an opportunity to be around people who have been in the game, regardless of whether it's hockey or basketball or football or baseball or soccer or, you know, I've been fortunate enough to do the Olympics and do fencing. And it's like, you know, you can learn a lot more by listening than you can by talking. So I would say that's the biggest thing, you know, just try and listen, try and pay attention and ask questions if you have questions and, you know, set up your set up your analyst. That's what they're there for. You're not the expert. They're the expert. But the bottom line is like anything. It's about reps. Uh, you, you've got to get the reps that uh, there's no substitute for the experience. How do you cover fencing? <laughs> Uh, again, you just let the analyst do everything. Yeah, it, it, that was a great experience, I, and I'm hoping I can be back with um, NBC doing the Olympics in 2020. That's going to be coming up before you know it. Um, I had never done fencing, and I got a call about a week before the Olympics started. Um, I, I had had some conversations with some contacts at NBC about possibly being involved in doing some Olympic stuff. And then uh, it, 
you know, didn't hear anything. And then a week before the Olympics, I get a phone call and they're like, hey, we need you. Uh, are you still available? And <laughs> and then I'm like, um, yeah, sure. So I did it out of Stamford, Connecticut, uh, where they do probably the bulk of their Olympic coverage. Most people, I don't know if they're aware that most of it gets called from studios in Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, you know, they'll send broadcast crews to the Olympic site for the for the big ticket items. You know, you're going to have a crew there for Michael Phelps and for women's gymnastics and for USA basketball. But for your archery and your fencing and your, you know, kayaking and your your uh, weightlifting, you're going to do that's all going to be done from a studio. And they've got a great setup for that in Connecticut. But I didn't find out I was even doing fencing. They called me a week before. Can you do the Olympics? What sports am I doing? Well, we're not sure yet. We'll let you know. Are you, are you um, okay? Fine. I found out four days before the Olympics I was doing fencing, uh, and that's not normal, and it's not ideal. Um, and I probably could have done a better job than I did had I known what I was going to be doing. But you know, I just again, I just I, I did a lot of YouTube research. Like in this internet age that we have, you know, I, I watched as much video as I could. I did as much reading as I could. I had long conversations with my analyst. And, you know, the main thing was I just, I set him up. I, I would say what I did know and I set him up to fill in the rest and, and I got out of his way. It's interesting that you talk about that because I just wrote about that in the last blog post on my webpage is that some people take the view if they get something they're not familiar with on short notice of, I'm not going to be able to do my very best on this. I don't want to do it and let someone hear me not at my best, as opposed to just saying yes and trying to figure it out and do the best you can and gain that exposure. What went into your decision? Was there any thought process of turning it down, or is it this is the Olympics, I'm going to do it regardless? It was definitely this is the Olympics, I'm going to do it regardless. The only caveat to that was obviously on short notice, that's going to take away from family time. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to all of a sudden, now I'm going to have to explain to my son who at the time was uh, six, you know, I, I'm going to be gone for two weeks after I, you know, I'm gone for most of the NBA season. So that part was probably, you know, the only thing that really gave me pause because I couldn't exactly, you know, take him with me. I would need to go there and, and be fully invested and it's a long commitment because you're committing to pretty much the entire Olympic, you know, time of the entire games. So that was really the only thing. I mean, but yeah, if the Olympics call you and they, you know, the people who are hiring you to do the Olympics, they know what position they're putting you in. And I took that as in some ways, you know, a badge of honor that they thought highly enough of me that they felt like. Uh, they felt confident that I could do it on short notice, that I would be able to go in and be able to handle it and not, you know, make the network or myself look bad. So, yeah, I mean, sure, you want to you want to be able to put your best foot forward. But y y uh, these opportunities don't come by all the time, you know. So, uh, I mean, if, if you've got an opportunity, uh, you shouldn't let fear stand in your way. I'm not saying you want to go out and do something unprepared and make yourself look bad. But, you know, if you, you got an opportunity, you've got to prepare as best you can and you got to seize that opportunity because you don't know when the next one's going to come getting your first huge break getting the timberwolves job moving from the bay area i read that you stood out of the crew that auditioned because of the way you reacted to a mistake during the audition <laughs> tell us that story 
So we did the audition in a studio in the basement at Target Center, and it was not the most ideal setup. It was a little studio that had been thrown together in a corner office, basically, and Jim Peterson and I were sitting at a desk, and we were looking at a monitor that was pretty far away from us. I mean, it was, you know a good 10 feet, which doesn't sound like a lot if you're watching a nice, you know, 52 inch big screen, but we're not watching a 52 inch big screen. We're probably watching like a 32 inch flat screen. And the, the, for whatever reason, the video feed was, I don't know if it was standard def or what the deal was, but it was not the most crisp. And so I'm doing my best to try to call a game off tape. And I, I called Luke Ridenauer for three. And then they took the tight shot, and then when the when they took the tight shot, I could see that it was Kevin Love, and I said something to the effect of, "Or oh, Kevin Love, you think I'd be able to tell the star player on the team?" And Jim Peterson said something to the effect of, "Yeah, well, they all look alike." And then we both just started laughing, and it showed that we had good chemistry, and I think that that was really what made what made us stand out and and you know jim and i we just kind of from there realized that you know we we liked to work together listen you would love every broadcast to be perfect you want to nail every call you want to get everything perfect you don't want to ever mess up a stat you don't want to ever do anything wrong on a broadcast you're on live tv for two and a half hours a night 82 games a year that's not realistic that's not going to happen there are going to be mistakes and i don't care if it's bob costas or al michaels or mike breen Nobody is perfect. We're all human beings there. You know, you try to minimize the mistakes. And and if you do have a mistake and if you can laugh about it and have good chemistry about it, then I I think that that's something that's really important. And that really stood out, I think, in in the audition. But did you think at that moment when you had screwed it up, (laughs) did you think that that would be a positive or did you think you had blown your opportunity? Um. On it, the, the the real answer to that is I didn't know because I was conflicted because on one hand, I did feel like, my God, how did I mess that up? You know, you're beating yourself up over it. But on the other hand, I did have this strong feeling that there was this good chemistry that had come out. And when I got on the plane and flew back to the Bay Area after the interview, I was telling, you know, my close circle of friends, they were like, how did it go? I'm like, I honestly can't tell. I honestly have no idea how it went. Like, on one hand, I feel like it went great. And on the other hand, I I don't know if I completely messed it up. I really could not tell. And, um, you know, it was in my gut. I kind of felt like maybe it was good, but I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to feel all, you know, confident about it because I was I didn't want to have a letdown either because I knew that it, it wasn't a great thing to have happen. But. You know, the the chemistry uh, in the end won out, and that's good. Building chemistry with an analyst, especially on the TV side, such an important part of the business. And you've been in a lot of places, done play-by-play, not full-time at all of them, but doing some sort of play-by-play all along the way. You have great chemistry with Jim Peterson, as you've mentioned, for the Timberwolves. Is that something you guys have naturally, or is that something that you have worked to to be able to do naturally with just about anybody along the way? It's a great question. Um, I, I, I think that it's both, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I would say it's probably more just Jim and I, our personalities just fit because we clicked from day one. 
But at the same time, I also realize what my role is. My role is to make the analysts look good. And I can't, I can't think that I've ever – and you're right. I've done a lot of stuff along the way. I mean, I've done arena football and radio, and I've done minor league basketball on TV and minor league basketball on radio, and I've done, uh, you know – some, some a little bit of foot, a little bit of uh, high school football, and uh, um, you know I d- I've done spring training baseball, and so and I, I mean I even did a hockey game at one time, and um, one time we won't go into that story. <laughs> uh, hockey, I, 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 much much credit to Anthony Lapanta, anybody that could do hockey. I love hockey, that but I would be so lost doing hockey. Um, but I, I can't think that I've ever like done a game and felt like, wow, I can't stand working with this analyst. Um, I, I, you know, I try to, I try to be affable and um, try to build chemistry with everybody. So I, it is something I work at. But you know, it's it's like anybody you meet. You're gonna, it's gonna be natural with some people more than it is with others. You said you didn't want to tell the story, which means I have to ask <laughs> you to tell the hockey story. Uh, so when I was in Utica. My first uh, real full-time TV job, they had us to – well, they actually had us to – come to think of it, we, they, they, have a, they had a race called the Utica Boilermaker, so we did that, too. We did li- live race coverage. Uh, so I, I've, I've called a big race, too, but that, that was probably a mess, too. Hopefully there's no tapes of that exist. Um, but the, we did a hockey game for a minor league hockey team called the Utica Blizzard, and I, at the time – knew so little about hockey because growing up in Syracuse wintertime was wintertime was basketball season um and it was funny because I think back when I was a little little kid there was a minor league team in Syracuse called the Syracuse Firebirds and I can remember asking my dad about going to games and he never really seemed interested so we never went and then I even you know said hey I'd like to try hockey and I think I got dissuaded from that Uh, they put a basketball in my hand whatever so the, the hockey thing was stunted from a very early age. I don't think it was intentional. It was just kind of just didn't develop. Um, when I was, so when I was in Utica and I was covering the blizzard, we did a game and I, uh, I was terrible. I was absolutely terrible. Uh, I mean, it was, it wasn't an icing. It was an icing penalty. Uh, <laughs> it was, you know, and, and at the end of the game, I actually said when the final buzzer sounded, I said, and that's the ball game. <laughs> so <laughs> not not one of my uh, finest hours. I've also done exactly one hockey game in my career, and I just remember being mortified listening back and hearing myself called the ice the floor. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, well, there is a floor under there, so it's not completely yeah, ex- wrong. Exactly, and it was pretty low stakes. It was a <laughs> very low-level junior team. I wasn't... I learned a lot from it. We'll, we'll say that. One of the things you've had to deal with over the last couple of years, probably not so much the last two years, but the last decade before that, the Timberwolves haven't been very good. So you've had to call some basketball that a, a lot of losses. How do you keep losses interesting, especially when they're lopsided? Well, you know, that's where preparation comes in, you know, and, and you really, you can't prepare for a blowout loss, but you can try to, your preparation can allow you to find a silver lining and extrapolate upon that. And when, you know, somebody gets in, like, uh, you know, you think about what happened with the Timberwolves this last year at the end of the season. I mean, it, thankfully it wasn't as dreadful of a season as, as, you know, the 16 win season that, they had a few years years ago, excuse me, that uh, you know led to the team being able to get Carl Anthony Towns. 
But, you know, you, you bring guys in at the end of the year that are, are playing their first NBA game. And, and so, you, you know, you tell the story of them and you try to have a little bit more background in them. But I think the biggest thing is you just try to keep it fun. At the end of the day, people are watching because they love basketball. You know, and and the and they yeah the, the they want to see the Timberwolves win. We want to see the Timberwolves win. Nobody takes the losses harder than the people that are calling the game and and traveling with the team and has have a vested interest in seeing them do well. Um, but you keep it fun, and if the other team is doing something great, you can talk about that too. There's not really, I don't think that there's a script for being prepared for handling the losses and handling the, the blowouts. But the you 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 have to try to find the silver linings. I think where some people kind of go wrong is, and, and, you know, you can ask different people how they handle this, but Jim and I, the one thing that, and we've never really had a conversation about how we were going to handle it. We've never said, hey, this is how I think we should do it. The season not going well or whatever. I mean, it's just kind of, this is why I think we have such good chemistry is I think we both feel like we want to put the Timberwolves in as positive of a light as possible. But we also are going to be realists about what is going on. Because I think anything other than that, you're being disingenuous to the fan. They could see what's going on. They could see the score. They could see the record. They know what's happening. But you don't, at the same time, you, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to string the team up and, and have a beat down either when things aren't going right. So you try to find those silver linings. You try to tell stories, try to take out the, to, you know, to bring the human aspect of it out so that people have a reason to still be invested. You talked about being positive, but being honest. And you had probably some situations where that was difficult to do this last year with Tom Thibodeau and Jimmy Butler and all the drama that went on around that situation. And I don't want to get into any of the the nitty gritty of the situation, but handling it from a broadcast standpoint, what did you talk about? What did you leave alone? How did you decide what, what to talk about and what to not? You know, it's, uh, you, you kind of just, that's where experience comes in, I think, and that's the biggest thing. You've just got to kind of have this feel for where that line is. You know, you, you, you know what the fans are thinking. You know what the team is thinking. And you know what the appropriate things that you can say and can't say are. And there's, you know, I, know, I don't know that that's a great answer. And I, I don't, you know, I don't feel great about the answer that I just gave you, but I don't know that there is a better way to put it. You just got to kind of go with your gut and go with your feel. And, um, you know, it, it, we, Jim and Jim is even better about it, I think, than I am, because, you know, Jim would say Jim would say some things, you know, that were honest. I can, and not just about Jimmy Butler. I can remember when we were in Toronto at the beginning of the beginning of the season and Carl Anthony Towns was not having a good night. And Jim said, cat looks like he doesn't want to be out there. Get him out of the game. And, um, you know, to me, I'm sitting there like, whoa, that's pretty that's pretty, uh, you know, direct that Jim just said that. And. At the end, after the game, we walk back in the tunnel, and Carl Town Sr. is back in the tunnel. And Carl, Carl hadn't heard the broadcast, and he walked up to Jim and he goes, "Man, he goes, I don't know what the deal with Carl was tonight. He looked like he didn't want to be out there. He made that he made that bad play. I was saying, get him out of the game. And it was exactly <laughs> what Jim had said on the air. So I think you know, it's just basically you gotta you gotta have a feel for it, and it all comes back to experience. And that's why it is important for. You know, for young broadcasters out there that that are hoping maybe someday that they can get a chance to work in the NBA or the NFL or Major League Baseball, 
cherish the opportunities that you have to call a game for a team like the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers or the Utica Blue Sox or the Utica Blizzard or whoever you're calling. Because when you're not under a big spotlight, you know, you have a chance to be able to kind of take some lumps and, and not get beat up for it. And that's and that's why in some ways I know I might be dating myself because it's hard to believe this is probably already a decade ago. But, you know, the boom goes the dynamite guy. You know, I felt terrible for that kid. You know, it's a kid who was at a I think it was Ball State. He's at a college university and he's working at a student station. And, you know, he's trying to figure out his way of being a sportscaster. And, you know, somebody got a hold of that and, you know, and it made its way on it was viral and. You know, I mean, I it's it's tough to the kid ended up getting on David Letterman for it, I think. So you know, maybe it didn't turn out that badly for him, but you know, it's um, that's that's I guess the downside to this technology age is is people can get a hold of stuff. I mean, I would not want any of my outtakes from the stuff that I was doing early in my career to be out there because I mean, you 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 can look kind of foolish, but you've got to take your lumps to be able to get better. Yeah, definitely I would not want anybody to hear my uh, Morningside College student calls. <laughs> that would not be a positive thing for my working career ever again. But I had an experience when I was in South Dakota where uh, a couple of the players kind of passed away tragically in a car accident, and it really hung over the entire next season. And it was kind of difficult to deal with as a broadcaster, knowing when to talk about it, when not to. Uh, after a big win when everyone's pointing at the sky. And with Flip Saunders, I, I don't think he was working officially for the team at that point, but still was very much hung over the team. He was involved to some degree. How did you deal with that? Or maybe there's another experience where you've had to deal with that in a broadcast situation. Well, first of all, I I, I, I think Flip was still officially – Sam Mitchell was the interim head coach, and Flip was still the okay. – I don't know if he had – officially in the in the offices, had he – you know, had his duties been officially handed over to somebody? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think, though, that they had been because, unfortunately, what happened with Flip, it, it happened very fast. Um, you know, and I still miss Flip to this day. And, I, you know, there, there's – Probably not a day go by, certainly not when I'm doing basketball, that flip doesn't come up in some capacity. And and with Ryan being, you know, here now on the team, it's it's come full circle. And now to see Ryan get this opportunity, and I'm so excited for Ryan and, and so happy that he's going to be the head coach uh, of this team full time. Um, but, again, it's one of those things in terms of how do you bring it up, you know, I think you just bring it up in in a, as as organic a way as possible as possible. You try not to force it. If it feels appropriate to bring it up, you bring it up. You don't avoid it, and you se- and you celebrate the man's life and you celebrate what he has done for basketball and done for the organization and the impact that he's had on people's lives. And you know, Tyus Jones will still tell you to this day how how impactful the flip was to him. Victor Oladipo told me that you know flip meant so much to him coming out of uh, coming out of college out of Indiana that Flip really loved Victor Lodipo and wanted uh, to try to find an opportunity to be able to draft him here to Minnesota. So um, it's an unfortunate thing. I'm sorry to hear that, you know, you've had to go through that as well. Um, you know, but it's, it's the reality of life and you, I, I don't think you run from it. 
Um, but I also don't think that you try to to force it. I think then if you do, it feels contrived. I think you just you know let those things happen organically. You and Jim are known for, I don't know if tangents is the right word, but for being very conversational. You've talked about Halloween candy and raking leaves. And <laughs> it's been written about, but knowing when to kind of go on a rant and ignore is probably not the right word, but let the the pictures do the talking while you guys have an interesting conversation about something else during the game. How do you decide when the right time to do that is? It's organic, you know, and the and I think we also, and it, it's a team effort. You know, people here, Jim and I, but, you know, you talk about the Halloween candy bit, you know, that was a, a produced thing where we had elements with pictures of Halloween candy. So we you know, we have, I don't know if a lot of everybody knows, but, you know, we'll have, we'll have a conference call every morning with the entire team, the producer, the director, the graphics people. Um, you know, there will be sometimes as many as, you know, 13 or 14 people on a conference call. So people will throw ideas out there and, hey, we're going to do this tonight. So some of those things are planned. But a lot of the things are organic. And, you know, when you get into a blowout situation, whether it be you're winning by a lot or you're losing by a lot, then you can give that a little bit more life because, you know, if it's if it's a 27-point margin with five minutes remaining in the game, it's pretty clear the game is over. And unless you've got somebody coming in who's playing their first NBA minutes, sure, then you can focus on that. But if it's just, you know, if it's just, your regular bench unit is out there and, you know, we're just trying to get this game over with to move on to the next city. You, you try to maybe go a little bit further on those things. But at the same time, I can't say like Jim and I, I don't think we've ever forced it either. It's, you know, it's when that happens or it's organic and it goes back to the chemistry thing, just kind of having a feel and, you know, just having a conversation that is, and honestly, sometimes, especially when we were in like the 16 win season, there were times like Jim and I felt like we were just talking to ourselves <laughs> and, and, and other people were, you know, were grateful. Other people felt it was interesting enough to still t uh, stay on board and listen to it. Tell us about being on Pawn Stars and selling Shabazz <laughs> Muhammad's signed shoes. I get asked about that a lot. Um, it's a little bit of a misnomer because um, I was not actually on Pawn Stars. Uh, we were in Las Vegas when uh, it must it was Summer League 2013, uh, and Shabazz was a rookie, and he was from Las Vegas. And uh, I it really it really happened because I was a huge fan of of the show Pawn Stars, and we were out in Vegas taping a summer edition of Wolves Weekly. And I had the idea like, hey, let's go see if we can go to Pawn Stars and, you know, have them bid on something and we can do it for charity. And then we were like, hey, let's get, you know, the, it was just one of those things. It just kind of one idea led to another. And we're like, well, what could we sell them? Oh, well, Boz is from Vegas. And, you know, he was the year before he had he had gone to UCLA as the number one high school recruit in the country. And there were still high aspirations for him to be you know, an, an NBA all-star. I mean, that, that was the, the hopes that he could have developed into that. And so we were like, Hey, this is perfect. Let's get his summer league shoes. We'll take them in there. And we called, I, I, you know, I set it up. I called the marketing person for the, the uh, pawn shop and uh, she was able to get uh, the old man. Uh, and I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. That's what they called Richard, uh, <laughs> Richard senior, who unfortunately is no longer with us. 
Um, but she was able to call him. He was the only one in town because everyone else, Rick was getting married and the wedding was going to be in L.A. So everybody else had already gone to L.A. for the wedding. But uh, Richard was still there. So she called him. He was willing, gracious to come in. We told him what we wanted to do. He said, all right, let's do it. So we shot it. And our Timberwolves uh, staff, they made it look like it was legit uh, a, a segment from Pawn Stars. It ran on Wolves Weekly. It found its way onto the Internet. And a lot of people over the years have seen that. And they actually think it was uh, a bit on Pawn Stars. Um, but it was actually just on Wolves Weekly. But it was cool getting to go in the pawn shop and, and uh, getting to meet the old man and getting to go bargain with him. And, uh, you know, it was a fun experience. And uh, I don't think that they, they did too well on their end. I think they paid uh, 250 for the autograph pair. It was 350 It was 350 Okay. Well, it was it was a few years, <laughs> six years ago already. That's crazy, uh, but yeah, we and the money went to the Timberwolves Fast Break Foundation, so it was it was for a good cause. Was it already decided how much they were going to donate, no. or was it a legitimate no. negotiation? It was a legitimate negotiation. I probably did not negotiate. If you watch that back, see, and you know, you as you know, Logan, we're our own worst critics. You know, like I look back at that segment, I'm like, oh, man, I could have done that so much better. I could have negotiated so much better. And it's like, you know, but you, you can't you can't be so hard on yourself. And that's the other thing, you know, young if young broadcasters listen to this podcast. It's never as bad as you think. And it's never as good as you think. So when you have a bad show and things go bad, don't beat yourself up too much. And when you think things went really good and you have a good show, don't get too high on yourself. Because it's it's always it's it's never either extreme. It's never as bad or as good as you think it is. Would your so one of the things I ask everybody who comes on this show, and I have a feeling as many places as you've been and as many people as you've worked for, you have some good ones. I like to call them broadcast horror stories. <laughs> the time where you're on the air or about to go on the air and everything goes wrong. Uh, who knows why or what, but just. Uh, it feels like a disaster at the moment, but you laugh about it now. What are yours? Well, I have two that come to mind, and one happened just this past Halloween, uh, and I think it's a, a pretty well-known thing, and I've told the story a few times, and, and I think most people know about it, but uh, it was the Jimmy Butler General Soreness Night, which was also <laughs> Halloween. It was also the night uh, of the Derrick Rose 50-point uh, performance at Target Center, and we... Um, there was a picture of Jimmy Butler dressed as a general, uh, which somebody had photoshopped and had called him General Soreness, an actual person. And it was Halloween and people were joking, like, I'm going to go dressed as General Soreness for Halloween. So a couple minutes before air, we see this picture pop up on social media. And Jim and I have a little laugh about it. So now we go live on the air and I thinking I'm going to be. I'm going to have a little bit of fun with Jim, and it's going to be just a little inside joke. I've got to open the broadcast by saying that Jimmy Butler will – basically, I'm supposed to say Jimmy Butler will not be playing tonight uh, because of general soreness. But rather than say it like that, I said it – I said – Jimmy Butler will be held out of tonight's game as the Wolves try to guard against General Soreness. And I said General Soreness <laughs> as if he was an actual person, thinking it would be a fun little inside joke for me and Jim. Jim lost it. Jim lost it. And anybody that's got NBA League Pass can go back and look at the at the broadcast from Halloween night, and, and they can see it. And that is why And Jim started dying laughing on live TV, on camera, at the top of an NBA broadcast. 
I start laughing with the two of us. It was, it was, it was real. I mean, it, at the time, it was like, oh my goodness, we both got the giggle attack and could not pull out of it. And you know, thankfully, I was able to get a handle on it enough to be able to land the plane without it being a complete crash. Um, but it was, it was something else. The other one came much earlier in my career. I was working in Green Bay, and. I was when I was in Green Bay, I had to do everything. I mean, I was recording the games, I was editing the highlights, I was writing the scripts, I was doing everything. And there was a Bucks game. Ray Allen was playing on the Bucks, and there was a Bucks game that was going right down to the wire. I mean, literally, like there's like two seconds left in the game. They're in a timeout. Bucks got the ball. They're down by one. And meantime, my newscast is they're like, you know, Dave Benz is next with sports. So, like, they're already going to the commercial, and I'm still in the sports office, like, being like, come on, inbound the damn ball. And they, and I'm recording, and they inbound it, rail, and gets it, hits a shot, Bucks win the game. And, you know, and I'm like, so I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. So I like, I, I edit the last play onto the highlights, and there's like now there's like 30 seconds left before I got to be on the set to do the highlights. So I'm sprinting into the I'm sprinting into the um, the studio, and I've got the tape with me for the highlights. And as I'm sprinting into the studio, right next to the the room next to the studio is the engineering room, and I go and I've done this. I've walked through this room at this point, you know, a thousand times. And I know the exact place. So I, I run in, and the engineer who's running the tape is sitting there, and I, I sit to him. I'm like, hey, John, here's the Bucks highlights. And I, like, toss him the tape. And I turn. I'm looking at him still, and I turn to make a right down to, to, the, to go down the, the short hallway that's going to take me into the studio. And I, as I make the turn, I I. Bam! I hit. They had done some. They had done some moving around of some of the metal racks in the in the studio or in the uh, engineering room earlier that day, and they had lined them up in that hallway going out to the studio. And I didn't know they were there. I was running full speed, and I turned and I hit my head first into a steel rack, and it didn't have a lot of give to it. And I was like, boom! I was. Oh my goodness! I was dazed, and it's like literally now, like fifteen seconds till I'm going to be on air. And I walk out to the studio, and our our uh, female news anchor, her name was Terry Barr, and Tom Milborn was the the uh, male news anchor. And I turn, and Terry looks at me, and she goes, "Oh my god!" And there was a a golf ball size knot that had already appeared on my forehead, and they're like, "You can't go on the air." It's so- so it was, so they come back. It was a very awkward. They come back on the air, and Tom's like, uh, "I'll be doing sports tonight." <laughs> and I and I go downstairs, and I found a pack of, of frozen peas in the, uh, you know, in in the uh, break room, and I'm sitting in there with the peas on my forehead as he's doing the highlights and butchering them because he didn't have a good shot sheet because I thought I was doing them myself, and I knew what the plays were. So anyway, those, those are the two stories that come to mind. Who are your favorite broadcasters to watch or listen to on a time when you have a, a night off? Uh, there's so many good ones. Um, you know, if you're going to talk nationally, Kevin Harlan and, 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 you know, Kevin is, is, is great, not just because of his ties to the Timberwolves. And he's been very gracious to me in the time that I've met him going all the way back to Green Bay. Um, but I mean, he's just, he's so much fun and he's so well-informed and he's on top of everything. Love listening to Kevin on the call. 
Um, you know, Marv Albert is still to me, I know some people feel like Marv has lost a little bit off the fastball and, um, you know, that may be true, but I still love listening to Marv and Marv to me is always going to be, and Mike Breen does a fantastic job. I, Mike is great and he's gracious. Um, but Marv to me will always be the voice of the NBA, NBA on NBC. And, you know, he was on the call for all the, all the Jordan, uh, games in the Bulls dynasty. And, you know, he'll always be in my mind, the soundtrack of the NBA. Al Michaels is fantastic. It's, it's tough to find anything negative to say about him. Bob Costas is great in his own way. I don't think a lot of people necessarily at this point consider Bob like a great play-by-play guy. They think of him more as a studio guy, but Bob was a fantastic play-by-play guy. And I know he still does a little bit of that. Um, and you know, if you're going to go more with the more regional guys, I mean, there are so many really spectacular, especially in the NBA. There are so many spectacular broadcasters. I love listening to the Dallas crew, Mark Folliwell, Derek Harper, Jeff Skin Wade. They have such a great balance for a three-person booth. Um, you know, you, you listen to um, Kevin Calabro and Lamar Hurd and Portland. They're fantastic. Um, I mean, it, you know, Eric Reed does a great job in Miami. He's been there forever. Mike Breen in New York and, and, and with the, the uh, NBA on ABC is fantastic. I mean, and I am in awe that there are so many different personalities and so many different styles within the league. And I enjoy I enjoy flipping around and listening to all of them. When I have an off night during the season, I will sit around and watch League Pass. You'd think that I've had enough basketball, but I will sit around and watch League Pass just because I really want to hear different people and hear different uh, stylistic voices telling the story of our game. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, how would they do so? Uh, they can get me on Twitter at tweet Dave Benz. Uh, I'm on Instagram. It's Dave Benz Insta. And I also have a website, DaveBenz.com. So uh, you could pretty much get to me through any, any of those ways. Perfect. Once again, we are talking to Dave Benz. He is the TV voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves. And Dave, thanks so much for coming on. Logan, thank you, man. Drove all the way over here, and uh, I appreciate it. And and you had to wait. You mentioned at the very top my other duties. I did pre and post today for the Minnesota Twins. Of course, it ended up being a four-hour game. You 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 emailed me about well, probably about four hours ago, and told me you were setting up, and uh, you waited for me for a long time to get over here. So I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find on all of them. Just look up Logan Anderson or Say the Damn Score. Also, I appreciate... Honest feedback, whether that's through an iTunes review, an email, or any other kind of honest feedback, it's greatly appreciated. I do listen, and it makes the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of this show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.